Let me start out tonight with some humor. Did you know that atheism is a non-profit association? You get it? A non-profit association. And yet that sure wasn't the case with the ancient Hebrews, no doubt about it. For throughout Israel's history, God sent men called prophets to convey His will to the people. Prophets had a spiritual calling. Prophets had a steely courage. Prophets had an inspired, spirit-inspired message. You know, the priests received their office by virtue of their pedigree, but God picked and appointed His prophets. They were His spokespeople to the nation. Think of a prophet as God's bullhorn. He trumpeted God's message. The prophet was pointed and candid. He spoke a timely word to a targeted audience. Usually his message was a blend of punishment and promises. He spoke of the need for the people to repent. He spoke of the promise of God's restoration if they did. Ultimately, all of the Hebrew prophets looked forward to the coming of their Messiah. Israel will sin and will be judged, but the people's sin will not ultimately thwart God's purposes, for Messiah will come to restore and to renew. This was the recurring theme of the prophets. The Savior will usher in God's eternal kingdom and fulfill all of God's promises. The Hebrew prophets were divided into two categories. There were the writing prophets, and then there were the non-writing prophets. For example, Elijah and Elisha were prominent Old Testament prophets, yet as far as we know, they wrote no books. Among the writing prophets, there are also two divisions. There are the major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets are five. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, also written by Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. There are twelve minor prophets in the Bible. And the distinction between major and minor really has nothing to do with content. For you'll notice, we'll find out later, the minor prophets pack a major message. There's nothing uh, short or light about their content. The designation major is all about bulk. Major prophets are major simply because of their size. And of the major prophets, this prophet, Isaiah, is known as the prince of the prophets. His ministry lasted longer. His style was more eloquent. His message more sweeping than his peers. His writings revealed an educated mind. Isaiah ministered in Israel for 60 years. He served God through the reigns of four kings from 740 to 680 B.C. Hebrew tradition says that Isaiah was a man of rank, that he was a member of the royal court. It informs us that Isaiah was a cousin of the southern king, King Uzziah. And Isaiah's name reflects his message. Isaiah means Jehovah is salvation. No other prophet or prophecy depicts as vividly the coming of our salvation, our King Jesus. Isaiah will predict the virgin birth of Christ. Jesus' character, His motivations, His life, His miracles, His death, His resurrection, His second coming, His future kingdom. All this and more will be predicted by Isaiah of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is why Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel. The book is quoted more times in the New Testament than any other prophet. And it's interesting that there are 66 chapters in Isaiah. 
And you'll note there's 66 books in your Bible. And did you know Isaiah is divided into two sections? The first 39 chapters speak of God's law and God's judgments. The last 27 chapters speak of God's grace and salvation toward Israel. And isn't it ironic that the Old Testament is made up of 39 books that speak of what? God's law and God's judgment. Whereas the New Testament consists of 27 books that are all about grace and God's salvation. It's as if the book of Isaiah is a mini Bible. The message of the whole Bible is packed into this one book of Isaiah. Verse 1 begins, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now a little recap of Israeli history. After the reign of King Solomon, the Hebrew nation became embroiled in a civil war. The northern ten tribes succeeded. They became known as the Kingdom of Israel, and their capital was Samaria. The southern two tribes remained faithful to King Solomon's rightful heir, a man named Rehoboam. The kingdom of Judah maintained Jerusalem as its capital. Isaiah ministered to this southern kingdom of Judah before and after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was a troublesome time. The king on the throne was Uzziah. He was a good and godly man. Uzziah reigned 52 years from 792 to 740 B.C. His obedience to God created a stability and a prosperity. And for the next 18 years, Uzziah's son Jotham followed in his father's footsteps. But Jotham's successor, a man named Ahaz, rebelled. He set in motion 19 years of idolatry and rebellion against God. He set the nation Judah on a collision course with God's judgment. And God's means of discipline came in the form of the ferocious, bloodthirsty, brutal Assyrian army. You know, today, even secular folks recognize the name Isaiah. But unless you're a scholar in ancient Eastern civilizations, names like Tiglath-Pelelezer, and Shalmanazar, and Sargon, and Sennacherib are probably meaningless to you. To us, they sound like names on the latest video games. Yet in the late 8th century B.C., these were the names that dominated world headlines. Turn on CNN, and these were the guys discussed by Wolf Blitzer. These were ruthless Assyrian kings bent on world conquest and expansion and domination. And Isaiah lived in the shadow of this Assyrian threat. In 734 B.C., early in Isaiah's ministry, this man, Tiglath-Pelelezer, drove his Assyrian army into northern Israel. He sacked its villages. He deported its people. Thirteen years later, in 722 B.C., his successor, Shalmanazar, laid siege to Israel's capital, Samaria. His son, Sargon, finished sacking Samaria in the kingdom of Israel and took her inhabitants captive. A few years later, his successor, Sennacherib, drove his army further south and pillaged the northern suburbs of the city of Jerusalem, 
the surrounding city of Jerusalem in 701 B.C. and became the threat to Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, and one of the chief prophets in Israel, Isaiah. For 40 years, Isaiah had heard the Assyrian train rumbling down the tracks, getting closer and closer to this collision. The mission that God had given him was to warn Judah and Jerusalem that unless the nation repent, they would suffer the same plight as their sinful northern sister, Israel. Well, Isaiah, he continues to write in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken, and I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Many a parent can share in that sentiment. For over 700 years since he brought Israel out of Egypt, God had parented his people Israel. He was a loving, patient father. He provided for his children. He taught his people. He spanked them when necessary. He was a good dad. And yet the Jews chose to rebel. And God tried it all to reach these rebellious kids. He punished them with famine. He rewarded them with prosperity as He did in the days of Uzziah. And neither worked. God's people, Israel, constantly bucked at His will. After a while, what's a parent to do? Verse 3, The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. The term crib means feed trough. You know, an ox will wander around until it gets hungry and then it comes home. Recently, modern Israeli police in the city of Haifa, they used this verse to track down a smuggling ring that was using ox-drawn carts to transport their stolen goods. After capturing some of the oxen, they were made to go hungry for several days. Then they were let loose. And just as Isaiah predicted, they headed straight for their master's crib. They led the police to the smuggler's hideout. You've heard the expression, dumb as an ox? Well, these folks were dumber than an ox. They get hungry. You know, an ox gets hungry and he comes home. But these Israelites, these Jews, they got hungry spiritually. And yet, rather than head to their master's crib, rather than come home, they fed on the world's pleasure. Many a Christian does the same thing. We get hungry spiritually, and rather than come and feed on Jesus, rather than come home to Jesus, people will turn to pills or booze or sex or sports. They make the age-old mistake of trying to quench a spiritual thirst with a physical pleasure. It never works. Faith realizes that we find our feed at the Master's feet. Next time you're bored, next time you're lonely, next time you get depressed, don't run off to your girlfriend's crib or your homie's crib. Like a smart ox, take your heart to the master's crib. Let Jesus fulfill your needs. Verse 4, alas, sinful nation, a people laden or literally loaded with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. God's not mincing words here, is He? They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. And if you're not pursuing God, you need to know you're headed backwards, man. 
Recall the wonderful promises of Jesus in Matthew 11. There He invites us, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sin weighs you down. It's Jesus that lightens your load. That's why He says to them, These are a people laden with iniquity. You know, Isaiah's favorite title for God appears here in verse 4, the Holy One of Israel. Of the 31 times this phrase appears in the Bible, it's used 26 times in the prophecy of Isaiah. And it speaks of God's impeccable purity, the Holy One of Israel. And in light of His holiness, it makes Israel's sin that much more deplorable. In other words, they had insulted the Holy One. I like Philip Yancey's comment on God's dealings in the Old Testament. He writes, Jehovah does not think like a social worker. He behaves instead like a holy God trying desperately to communicate to cantankerous human beings. That's what we'll find of God here in the book of Isaiah. A righteous God will get angry. He does get frustrated. He isn't always delicate or diplomatic. God is the Holy One of Israel, and He despises the sins of His people. In verse 5, Isaiah asks, Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. Hey, you know there's a fine line between stubborn and stupid. Did you know this? I've met a lot of people who were stubborn, so much so that it nullified their brilliance. Ever met a smart person who was just stubborn? And it was his stubbornness that made him no better than stupid. And this was Israel. They revolted time and time again, even though God faithfully disciplined them each and every time. It's been said true stupidity is making the same mistake over and over while expecting a different result. That was Israel. Isaiah adds, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. For the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Judah was still licking her wounds from her last divine spanking. And yet they continued to persist in their sin and rebellion. The nation wouldn't even give itself a chance to heal. Never forget Hebrews 12, verse 6, Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And He scourges every son whom He receives. Hey, if you've been a child of God for long, you know how faithful God is to administer a little spanking from time to time. We all need one. The Lord disciplines His kids. The smart kids learn from those mistakes and allow God time to heal them. Verse 7, Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Remember, ten of Israel's twelve tribes, the northernmost tribes, had already been wiped out by the Assyrians. And only a remnant... Only two tribes remain, the two southernmost tribes, Judah and Simeon. And now they are surrounded by Assyrian troops. Boy, I'm intrigued by this analogy that he uses, this, this word picture. 
like a hut in a garden of cucumbers. I suppose you could say the nation of Judah was in a real pickle. (laughs) I've been waiting all week to say that. Like a hut in a garden of cucumbers. They were in a real pickle. That's worth doing twice, I'm sorry. This is good. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And here Isaiah is speaking metaphorically to stress the depth of their sin and the certainty of their judgment. He refers to Judah, God's people, as Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 11, God has a beef with the people's beef, their sacrifices. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. I mean, so what if someone brings a sacrifice when there's willful sin and stubbornness in their heart? He says, when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. Hey, you know the church is bad when God no longer wants to attend the service. That's what he's saying. Religious rituals are worthless if a person is guilty of rebellion against God in their heart. To come and to present their sacrifice, whatever it might be, even their sacrifice of praise, is essentially trampling the court of the Lord. You know, the Bible refers to acts of devotion as labors of love. Our worship should always be an overflow of our love for God, our genuine love for God. Not a substitute for love, but an overflow of love. Obviously, expressions of worship are important. And lovers know this truth. It's important to show love to the person you love in tangible ways. But God won't be played. He hates it when a person just goes through the motions without the devotion. He despises a faith that's a farce. And Christians today can be just as guilty as this sort of hypocrisy as the Hebrews of old. When we sing our songs, when we raise our hands, when we give our offering, let's always make sure that God has no beef with our beef, our sacrifices to Him. Verse 15. For when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. What an irony. Bloody hands, guilty hands, lifted up to God in worship. God ignores such prayers. Wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. I mean, here's what God desires. Not beef, but belief. True faith and repentance ceases from sin. It puts away the evil. It practices the good. It does good and seeks justice and defends the weak. A sincere faith doesn't cease, doesn't just cease to do evil. It learns to do good. And so verse 18, he calls out, come now. And let us reason together, says the Lord. In essence, God is here inviting Judah to settle their disputes with him out of court. 
He doesn't want to judge them. God wants them to settle. He wants to settle his grievances with them. He wants to forgive his people before he's forced to render a verdict. He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. And if they do, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Oh, there's nothing but forgiveness in God's heart toward his people. If they'll just repent. Nothing is as pristine as a freshly fallen snow. It blankets everything. Even the dirt. Even your trash cans. They all disappear under the white snow. They all are covered up by purity. And this is what happens to our past when God forgives us. His pardon sticks to us like a fluffy, clean snow. Judah can avoid God's judgment and be clothed in God's purity if they simply repent. And His promise is for us too. Verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Judah has a choice here. It's up to them, really. Obey will bring blessing. Rebel will bring ruin. In verse 21, Isaiah compares Jerusalem to a harlot. She's committed spiritual harlotry. She's given her heart to idols. She has broken her vows to God. And Isaiah shouts out, How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Judah once loved God and once stood for the truth of God, but her righteousness has now been diluted. And here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Has our love for God and His righteousness been slowly watered down? Has our commitments to God been diluted? You know, in today's world, compromise is common. It's been said compromise is feeding the alligator only to ensure you're the last one eaten. But you will get eaten if you compromise. Better to stand your ground and refuse to budge. Refuse to compromise. He says your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Therefore the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. And here, notice the Lord, Isaiah uses three titles for God. The Lord, the Lord of hosts, and the mighty one of Israel. He uses three titles for God. It could be a subtle reference to the Trinity. He quotes this triune God. Ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all of your aloe. God will judge His people in a way that will purify them. He says, I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Notice God punishes in order to purify. This is always God's goal. It's to restore. It's to reestablish us to the place He desires for us. But before he can reestablish us to a good place, he first has to clean house. And this is what he's doing here 
among His people Israel. Never in the history of Judah and Jerusalem was the city of Jerusalem qualified for the title City of Righteousness. In fact, rather than known for its faithfulness, the opposite was true. Thus, here is a promise for the future. This name, the City of Righteousness, looks to a day when Jesus will return to earth to reestablish His kingdom. He'll rule the world from Jerusalem. And then finally, Jerusalem will be known for its righteousness. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. I'm sure you've seen people that cut their shrubbery in artistic shapes and designs. Have you seen this? I always scratch my head when I see it. Who's got time to do that? But the people who do it. And believe it or not, this is nothing new. For the ancient pagans worshipped fertility gods by growing up groves and then trimming the trees in the shape of phallic symbols. God saw this idolatry And he said that Judah would one day be ashamed and be embarrassed because she had embraced this kind of paganism. He says, For you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades, and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tender, and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together, and no one shall quench them. Chapter 2. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. And here's a term that usually speaks of the end of this present age, the latter days. This is synonymous with the term day of the Lord. You've heard that term. Today is the day of man. Rebellious men are having their say, getting their way. But the day is coming when God will have the final say. And Isaiah sees that day. And in it, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. The mountain of the Lord's house is the center of Jerusalem. Today we call it the Temple Mount or Mount Moriah. When you go to Israel, you can travel to this very spot and you can stand in the place where one day Jesus will rule the world. The Bible teaches that all nations will come once a year to worship Jesus on this mountain, the mountain of the Lord's house. Today, the Temple Mount is controlled by the Waqf, or the Islamic religious authority. In fact, you're forbidden to even bring a Bible on the mountain. Although I've heard of some sneaky pastors who break the rules and smuggle Bibles under their jackets onto the Temple Mount and read them anyway. But the practice is officially forbidden. And yet when Jesus reigns, this mountain will become the site of all kinds of Bible teaching and Bible study. Verse 3 tells us, Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Verse 4 is a famous verse. It speaks of the Messiah. 
He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Jesus will one day bring peace. You know, Isaiah will later refer to the Messiah as the Prince of Peace. Jesus will orchestrate what has eluded mankind since Cain slew Abel, a genuine and lasting peace. Today, Israelis and Hamas are killing each other just a few miles from the mountain of the Lord's house. But one day, when Jesus returns, He will bring true peace. There is a stone wall at the United Nations building in New York City that bears an inscription. It's actually Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, the verse that we've just read. But it's interesting, it's only the second half of the verse. Ironically, it was a gift from the former Soviet Union. And it's no surprise that the godly atheists would leave off the first half of verse 4, which reads, He shall judge the nations and rebuke many people. Oh, they love to talk about beating the swords into plowshares. But there can be no real peace without judgment first, without God's judgment. Righteousness won't come until Jesus reigns and He judges the nations and He rebukes the wicked. Understand, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus will bring peace to this earth, but only after He kills off everybody who opposes the one true God. Verse 5 is an indictment that not only fits Judah of old, but it also applies to modern day America. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Sadly, our country today has also forsaken God for a smorgasbord of eastern ways. Rather than remain true to our Judeo-Christian heritage, American culture today has embraced Eastern mysticism and all sorts of paganism. I mean, there was a day when stress relief came in the form of prayer. Today, it's yoga. Or it's other forms of meditation. Zen and transcendental meditation. There was a time when ballplayers asked God to help them achieve their best. Today, they want to visualize. Those are Eastern ways. Today's secular vocabulary has changed. Biblical terms have been replaced with Eastern references. Bad circumstances are no longer God's test, or dare we say, a judgment from God. Today, it's called bad karma. The other day, I heard a pastor, no less. A pastor. He used the expression, Well, in a former life... Now, I'm certain the man doesn't believe in reincarnation, but his passing comment is evidence of how deeply Eastern thought has permeated our Western culture. Biblical truth is no longer our bedrock. You see, we've embraced Eastern ways. We've come full circle. As Christianity began to spread across the Roman world, it liberated people from the moral perversion and the pagan superstition and the Eastern religion that had rendered it in bondage and made it and enslaved it for centuries. Biblical Christianity spawned incredible prosperity all throughout the West 
Christianity liberated us from the superstitions of our past. But now that we've rejected God's truth, we're returning to the very same lies that once oppressed us. This was also what had happened in Isaiah's day. And yet not only had, Isaiah, had Judah become perverted, they had also grown greedy, verse 7. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. Let me say something that, that should shake us all up. Don't expect God's forgiveness if at the same time you're hanging on to a bag full of your own idols. This is an error among Christians today. Yes, forgiveness is free. No doubt about it. It's been paid for by the blood of Christ. There's nothing you can do to earn God's salvation. It's by grace through faith. But don't expect Jesus to save a person He cannot rule. You've got to embrace the Lord alone if you want to know His pardon. You can't grab hold of salvation if you won't let go of the idols you're holding in your hands. This is why it's true. Either Jesus is Lord of all, or He's not Lord at all. The day is coming when God will humble mankind. Verse 10 warns, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Do you get the idea that God is tired of little puny men walking around with their little haughty looks and their little arrogant ways? Do you get that idea? Once there was an elder senator, he was talking to a freshman colleague. He looked out the window at the Potomac River and he pointed to a log that was passing down the river. He said, Washington is like that log. There are probably a hundred thousand grubs, ants, bugs, and critters on that old floating log, and I imagine every one of them thinks he's steering it. Isn't that the truth of Washington? In fact, of the world at large. Everyone thinks they're the captain of their own ship, but they're not. And in the end, they'll see that it's God who calls the shots. It's God who's in control. He alone is Master and Lord. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low, upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, and upon every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the beautiful slopes, sloops, the boats. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols He shall utterly abolish. One day, the only thing on the menu is going to be humble pie. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily. 
Revelation depicts these cataclysmic terrors that will one day rock this world. They'll do so just prior to Jesus' return and the establishment of His kingdom. In fact, the upheaval will be so severe that the earthlings will hide in holes and in caves from the wrath of the Lamb. Wow, isn't that an ironic term? The wrath of the Lamb. Jesus, the Lamb of God, will one day roar like a lion. Apparently, Isaiah saw the same vision foreseen by John in Revelation. I love J. Vernon McGee's comment here. He says, I don't know whether men were ever cavemen or not, but in the future, men will be living in caves. That's what Isaiah predicts here. The inhabitants of earth will try to duck God's judgment, but they'll fail. Verse 20. In that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made, each for himself to worship, to the moles and bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks, from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty, when He arises to shake the earth mightily. When God shakes things up, men will realize the impotence of their worthless idols. They'll run for cover, but they can't escape God. You see, either you run into God's loving arms now, or you'll run from His terror then. Verse 22, Sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? This phrase, whose breath is in his nostrils, is another way of saying a mere mortal man. In other words, his life is tenuous. His breath is in his nostrils. He's that close to dying. Isaiah is encouraging his readers not to trust in man, but to trust in God. And in the days of God's final judgment, what the Bible calls the great tribulation, the world will put its trust in a man, will it not? Antichrist will be hailed as mankind's Savior, but the world will quickly discover that his promises are sinister. Here Isaiah warns, sever yourself from such a man. Chapter 3. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. God's judgment will end commerce. The mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, and the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan, and the expert enchanter, the men of society will all be cut down in God's judgment. Only the kids, the children, will be left to govern. He says, I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. It's one thing when the, the men are all cut down, they're, they're all destroyed in the judgments, and the only people that are left to rule are the children. He says, the people will be oppressed, everyone by another, and everyone by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder, and the base toward the honorable. <laughs> when the children rule, do you think wise judgments will be made? Ice cream for everyone! Reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Paul lists some of the characteristics of the last days. Perilous times will come. And then he adds, disobedient to parents. You know, it's interesting. This is happening today. The children are ruling. For many parents have lost control of their kids. 
Parents today are afraid to discipline their kids. And because they're not disciplining their kids early in their lives, they're ending up with undisciplined teenagers later. In short, the inmates have taken over the asylum. You know, it's revealing to me when companies no longer market products to parents. Have you noticed this? Did you know that today's advertisements go right past the parents and they target the kids directly? Do you know why? It's revealing. It's because the kids are the ones in charge. And the companies know it. Parents refuse to put their foot down and say no to their kids. The kid gets whatever he wants. And later the parent is surprised when the child lacks the ability to say no to his own desires. Oh my. Once an Englishman in the United States on holiday, he was quoted as saying, What impressed me most about America was how the parents obeyed their children. Verse 6. When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have clothing, you be our ruler, and let these ruins be under your power. In that day he will protest, saying, I cannot cure your ills, for in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people. Times will be so tough, so desperate, that no one will aspire to public service. This is what he's saying to us. People will be too busy with their own issues, their own pursuits to run for public office, to have a concern for the society at large. He says, For Jerusalem stumbled and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of His glory. The look on their countenance witnesses against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Oh boy, the city of Sodom was infamous for many reasons. Ezekiel 16 mentions Sodom's pride and, and Sodom's greed. Genesis 18 speaks of her shameful acceptance of homosexuality. Sodom was so depraved, so callous toward conscience and toward nature and the natural order and toward standards of morality and godliness that homosexual behavior was legitimized in Sodom. And is this not what's happening all across Western civilization today? They declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. In today's promiscuous society, homosexuals feel emboldened. They're free to exit the closet. And it's an indictment not only against the homosexual, but the society at large that's lost any kind of moral compass. God judged Sodom for her blatant rebellion against God and against nature. Several years ago, this prompted Billy Graham to make the comment, if God does not judge America, He'll have to apologize to Sodom. And it's true. Verse 10 tells us, Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. In other words, you'll reap what you sow. Verse 12, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. Boy, again, how that sounds like modern America. Those who lead you 
cause you to err. You know, the greatest social problem in our country today is the absence of strong, loving male leadership. Children oppress and women rule. Why? Because men have bailed out on leadership. Today, men are missing in action. Absent dads. Apathetic husbands. This has become epidemic in our society. You know, I used to think that women wanted to rule over men, but I'm afraid that most women end up doing so out of necessity. Deep in a woman's heart, I believe she wants a man that she can trust and that she can follow. She desires a loving leader. But after being jilted a few times, a growing distrust for men builds up in her heart. She ends up bitter and calloused and cautious, and she's afraid to let the man lead. And here's the challenge today. If we're going to get this right again, if we're going to reorder society around God's rules and God's principles, Christian men need to step up, and they need to lovingly lead their wives and their children. And Christian women need to trust God to lead their husbands and need to learn to let them lead. If we can do that, society and children will grow stronger and families will become healthier. Verse 13. The Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of His people and His princes. For you have eaten up the vineyard, the plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord God of hosts. And here's another mark of a society in decline. Cruelty toward the poor and the outsiders. You know, the Israeli welfare system was ingenious. A portion of the crop was left in the fields unharvested. So that the poor people could come along after the gleaners had done their job and had harvested the crop, and they could take up what was left. This was more than a handout. Poor folks had to show initiative. They had to work to receive their benevolence. They had to go back out into the fields and collect what was left. And here God rebukes the princess for eating up the vineyard, for not allowing any of the harvest to remain in order to feed the poor. They were plundering the house of the poor by, by completely harvesting the crops down to the, you know, down to the nubs. Sheer greed was taking food from the poor man's mouth was another mark of a decadent society. He says, Moreover, the Lord says, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. Now, Isaiah, <laughs> he's measured society's moral and spiritual health in several ways here. He's pointed to several marks of a decaying society. Disrespect toward parents. Quality of political candidates, or lack of quality. Acceptance of homosexuality. Absence of male leadership. Callousness towards the poor. These are all marks of a decaying society. But here's another benchmark. The carnality of women. And sadly, in Isaiah's day, the daughters of Zion were vain and seductive, and materialistic. Jerusalem's desperate housewives 
had abandoned their home and their families. They were walking about, jingling their jewelry, Isaiah says. They were selfish and spoiled. Mincing means pampered in a bad way. Recently, a wife was quoted in the New York Times, or the L.A. Times as saying, Men don't understand that shopping is our drug of choice. She was justifying the stash of credit cards she hid from her husband. This is the attitude in Isaiah's day. Women were impressed with outward beauty, not virtue. You know, it, it's, it's sad when the women become carnal and corrupt. You, you know, you guess when it happens to the men, there's still hope. Their wives can straighten them out. But when it happens to the women, what has happened to the society? Isaiah says this is what was happening in his day. And he says, punishment will come upon these ladies. Verse 17, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. I mean, think, she's gone to the beauty parlor. She's adorned her locks, and she's gotten an updo. I mean, she's looking really nice and cool, and and God's going to replace it with an ugly scab. It's going to humble the ladies. In verses 18 to 23, it's as if Isaiah turns a lady's purse upside down and just kind of dumps out its contents. That's kind of how I picture these verses. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarfs and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments and the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms and the rings, the nose jewels. Notice there's nothing new about nose rings. The Orientals had them. They were falling out of the purses of the ladies of Judah. The festal apparel and the mantles, the outer garments, the purses and the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans and the robes. Ladies, the Lord of glory has just gone through your drawers. He has just examined and taken inventory of your wardrobe. And he has found nothing in it of lasting value. He wants you to adorn yourself with virtue and godliness and inner beauty. Verse 21 says of the horrors of war that are coming to the spas and salons of Jerusalem. So it shall be. Instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war. Her gates shall lament and mourn, and she, being desolate, shall sit on the ground. The smell of perfume will be masked by the soot of the fire. The scarves and the hair color will be replaced with sackcloth and shaved heads. Captors will adorn wrists and ankles with ropes, not bracelets. Rather than cosmetics, the women will be branded as slaves. In other words, judgment will come to Judah if Judah doesn't repent. And on that happy note, we'll end the Bible study right there tonight.